As we launch our new annual vision, No Stone Unturned, I think it's best to walk through the interesting combination of experiences that led us to this moment. We started a staff retreat. Staff retreat last spring, uh, uh, one of our great servant leaders uh, looked up, we were having a big discussion and, and asked me, hey, wait, what does it look like when a person is ready to be useful for God? And then another one chimed in, piggybacked on that and said, hey, what, what steps do you think a church member should take to grow up in Christ? Now, while appreciating the discussion, I frankly bristled at this. There are churches who devise very particular formulae for spiritual growth. Everybody has to do this step, and then this step, and then this step. But our team knows I am not a fan of such systems. Stiff requirements like that are usually far more step-by-step -step specific than Scripture warrants, and I think their most dangerous problem is they lead to a formulaic Christianity that ignores the individual work of the Holy Spirit. So, I looked at our team, and I laughingly accused our pastors of wanting a spiritual growth formula. I said, you just want some kind of spiritual steroid shot. It's going to have the same kind of false results and nasty side effects that physical enhancement steroids do, and we all laughed, and we moved on to other topics. But the next morning, I was reading in 1 Samuel uh, chapter 17. I had my old Bible with me that I use when I travel, and I was sitting out on the front porch uh, reading, and, uh, and I came to this. Why don't you open your Bible, join me. First Samuel, you'll find it near the beginning of your Old Testament, uh, right after Ruth, amazingly, before Second Samuel, and uh, go to First Samuel chapter 17, and let's read verse 40. <clears throat> he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi. Now, little context, this is David is talking about. Uh, David, when he was just a youth, and he's taken off, the context is he's just taken off the heavy armor, the, the human armor that has been given to him. Instead, he puts that aside and just uses the, the thing with which God has versed him, the natural thing, the stones. And he picks them up out of a wadi that's a dry stream bed. He's on his way to fight whom? Do you know the story? Who's he going to go fight? Goliath. We're not going to read that part of the story. Does it end well for Goliath? No. Okay, you got the idea. All right. So, back to the, back to the text. So, Instead, he took his staff in his hand and chose five smooth stones from the wadi and put them in the pouch in his shepherd's bag. Then with his sling in his hand, he approached the Philistine. Now, in the margin of my old Bible was a note that I had written long ago when I first was reading this. And, uh, and it said, why that detail? Why smooth stones? And I'm sitting on the porch and I saw that I read the passage and I looked at my old note. And then I kind of laughed and I sat back. And I remembered when I got the answer to that question. I, it was the very first time I went to Israel. I have an Israeli friend named Ronnie, and Ronnie took a sling uh, made out of wool. It's woven wool, very similar to the Bronze Age types that, that David would have used. And he showed me the difference between trying to sling a rough stone and a smooth stone. And it's a massive difference. You see, the, we were in the exact same water, exact same place. This is where David got those stones, same place. And he grabbed a stone from in that dry riverbed. It's still the same today and one from out here in the rough spot. And you know what the difference is? The smooth stone is faster and it flies true. The rough one gets all kinds of aerodynamic problems. The smooth one cuts through the atmosphere. It stays on target. The smooth stone, in a word, is useful for what David, what God wants to do through David. David, let me just say this. If David had grabbed rough stones we probably would not know his name today at all. He would, in his death before Goliath, he would have been another notch on Goliath's belt if he had chosen rough stones. Instead, he specifically chose smooth stones. All right, not long after that retreat, 
uh, I received Dan Boland's weekly devotional. And as many of you know, I, I always enjoy Dan's thoughts. I think he's very, very sharp. But this particular one made me really sit up. Apparently, Dan was also thinking at this same time about smooth stones because he shared the story that I uh, copied into your notes. You, you got a worship guide when you came in. Open it up. Look on the left-hand side. You'll see a story there from Dan. He says, when our girls were young, we bought a lapidary machine, a device used to polish stones. We filled the cylinder with jagged rock, sand, and water, and then set the machine on the front porch and turned it on. Slowly but steadily, the motor rotated that cylinder over and over and over and over. A few weeks later, we opened the case and marveled at the transformation. The rough, jagged edges of the rocks had been worn down, leaving beautiful, polished stones. We all have rough edges and need some burrs knocked off, something the Apostle Paul, Dan says, explains in Colossians 3.16. Now, surely you can see where this is going. I didn't at first, but all this finally helped me realize what our pastors were actually requesting at that retreat. They didn't want a specific formula, a, a rigid step-by-step, -step, which I will never give. They did not want a spiritual steroid shot. They just wanted to know how the body of Christ can help get the rough edges off of each other so that we're all useful for God's work, knowing that the smoothing necessary for usefulness requires interactive friction, and it does. The pastors were asking, how can, just, how can we be most effective at shaping each other's lives? It's something I learned as a boy. I spent the greater part of my childhood in the creek behind our house. And, uh, and here's what we all noticed. At our creek, the isolated rocks, the ones that were on their own, remained rough. They had rough edges that never, ever, ever got worn off. In fact, they ended up remaining very much like this stone that came from the rough part, the non-flowing part of a river in Colorado. By the way, when I was working on all this stuff and thinking about this, our awesome senior high pastor, Jared Coe, was on vacation in Colorado. And so I wrote Jared and I said, hey, dude, can you grab me a rough rock and a smooth rock from a river? And he said, no problem. I'm thinking small. <laughs> and Jared comes back on vacation. He says, hey, I got the rocks. I said, great. And he said, let me get them. And I thought, get them. They're in your hand. And he walked in and went, Poof. this is not moving all year. I don't know. I mean, this is really, anyway, no, it's really great. It's excellent. So that, that's what they remained like. But in the creek behind our house when I was a kid, sometimes rocks would get pulled into what we kids called the turn. I'm not really sure why we called it, but it was a 90-degree bank we all called the turn, and it, and it was a really heavy flow there, and it actually had an undertow. It was kind of cut into the bank, and rocks that would get taken into the turn got caught there, and they, and they stayed, and they, they ended up being, after a couple of months, you could throw the roughest rock possible in the turn, and after a couple of months, it would turn out like this. This is, this is the small one Jared brought me. Um, isn't that cool? They would turn out like this. They're, they're smooth. They're pretty. They're, they're useful for service. That's what I learned. You know, in many ways, a church is a lapidary machine, or, or a church is the great turn in the creek. The staff questions that led to this annual theme could probably have been restated this way. How should members of a church scrape and shape and polish each other or to put it another way, how should we live so that no stone is left unturned? So that's where I found myself when I began thinking through all these issues. And I formulated it into a somewhat coherent series of thoughts, and I shared it with our church elders. And the elders decided this was more than good, just a good plan for the staff. They thought this would make a good annual vision for the church as a whole. One elder wrote me, he said, after all, redeemed community is the core of the church's mission. And he's right. We are a redeemed community. 
Another of our elders wrote me this. He said, wow, this is really giving me something to chew on. It's hitting very close to home with me. One word, he said, has really stuck with me, develop, develop. I'm still thinking through this word in light of the theme. He went on with the rest of a paragraph I put in your notes. He said, I love the stone polishing machine illustration by Dan Bullen. For his girls, the anticipation of the rocks finishing must have seemed like forever, especially in this instant gratification culture of our era. Similarly, as we are investing in people and people are shaping us, it seems like it takes forever for the sharp edges, sins, bad habits, etc., to come off. But when it's over, and here he put in a parenthesis, you know what I mean, of course it's never really over. When it's over, we can look back and see that it didn't really take that long for something beautiful to roll out. Aren't those great? Let me show you one more, uh, one more point from one of our servant leaders. Another one wrote, he said, Wayne, this fits. After all, an annual vision needs to address a major opportunity for the church in our present world situation, and this is the biggest problem we see in society, both inside and outside the church. Close quote. Now, very quickly, let's make sure we understand that important point. The point he makes here is once worth remembering. An annual vision needs to address a major opportunity for the church in our present world situation. So, for example, we adopted Reformed as our vision for the year leading up to the 500th anniversary of the Protestant Reformation. With so much press and so much celebration that we knew would go on that year, it seemed useful to spend a year going back over the biblical truths that drove the Reformers. Uh, we used use your powers for good was our annual vision. And that was a response to the serious problem. We were seeing a serious problem. Christians worldwide had largely stopped doing good deeds and stopped standing up for right. Partners with the unfathomable power of God the Spirit, Christians needed to exercise strength for good. All God's people said, amen. We adopted build to last because what we saw was a mounting vacillation and uncertainty. Christians need to build our lives on Scripture, solidarity, and the Spirit. These practices transformed our forefathers' lives. They can shape us as well. You see, each year, each year's vision is looking ahead to what we're very likely going to face in the year to come and what God's Word says to do in order to triumph through that situation, which brings us to a great question you're asking. I know right now in your Rocky imitation, you're, you're saying, Cut them open, Nick. No, you're saying, Yo, Adrian, what are the problems we're looking at this year? Great question, Rock. Thanks for asking. As always in this fallen world, there are many. Right now, I see three big blockades, three problems that seem to serve as the most serious obstacles to growth as a community. Atop the right side of our notes, you'll see my summary. Look there. Look at the right side of your notes. Current attempts to grow in community are badly hampered by three massive blockades that rule 21st century Western thought. Individualized definitions of self, hypersensitivity, and groupthink. An ironic <clears throat> and explosive combination, these factors sour society as a whole and severely limit the sanctified growth of Christians in particular, close quote. And that's really what was behind those staff questions. How, how can we possibly knock the rough edges off each other in community when people are uber-individualized, they are hypersensitive, and they are ruled these days by separatist tribal groupthink mentalities? Just, just an example. Consider just how hard it is to draw people into a community that is designed to take off their rough edges even when that community is really fun. So, for example, for a long time in this country, organized sports played a refining role in young lives. How many of you, between the ages of 6 and 12, at some point between the ages of 6 and 12, played some kind of organized sports activity? Raise your hands. 
really high. Okay, just about everybody in here. And, the, and that fits with what we see in the data. Now, it's not usually a redeemed community, but joining a team has really important developmental benefits. I think the most important one is it teaches the participant that you're not alone. You, the participant learns that he is not the only one that matters. She's not the only one that matters. Uh, for a long time, American kids played on teams. It was part of life. Now, numbers weren't kept until the late 20th century, but in the late 20th century, it was well over 50% of 6 to 12-year-olds had been on a sports team. But then in 2008, a big survey was done, and that number had dropped to less than 50%. And then this year, a whole other big survey was done. It is down to 38%, just barely over a third. That means that an entire generation is growing up with less engagement that could help them learn the joy of being shaped by a team. And this is not just a childhood problem. All ages this, these days are plagued by tribalism, divisiveness, self-centeredness, and a bad understanding of self that leads to isolated hyper-individuality. Hypersensitivity is also a massive problem. You know, in our culture, we have... We have learned that the one who cries the loudest gets what he wants. And so, so it's become a trained thing built in for a number of generations in our society that everybody learns to be continually upset babies. It would be hilarious if it weren't so tragic. I was on the phone recently with um, an insurance adjuster's assistant. We were talking through the claim for the hailstorm that destroyed our roof and a lot of our yard and house and everything. And uh, so I'm talking, I'm talking to this this lady, and, um, and the phone connection is not great, so she keeps saying, uh, let me repeat what you said, let me repeat, and she's saying everything back, which is fine, it takes longer, but it's fine, so I would say one of the claim things, she'd say da-da-da-da, and repeat, repeat, and then all of a sudden I said something, and she didn't repeat it, okay, so then I said something else, and she didn't repeat it, so I at that point said, oh, hey, did you get that one? That's all, I said, did you get that? All of a sudden, Mr. Hyde replaced Dr. Jekyll at the other end of the line. She said, how dare you question my competence? I don't have to take that from anyone. You shouldn't be picking at me like that. I, ah, uh, okay. Now, amazingly, thank the Lord, I was praying as I was talking to her. Uh, amazingly, I got her to calm down, and we actually finished the claim, which was fine. But I started thinking that kind of hair-trigger response that's not really rare, is it? Let me just ask you. If in the last year you have been shocked by a similar kind of hypersensitivity, <laughs> if you've been shocked by a similar hair trigger change in someone hypersensitive, raise your hand if that's happened in the last year. Yeah. Aren't you glad we're not like that? Right? I mean, it's only other people who are thin-skinned and overly sensitive. I said that to somebody. I, I was talking to somebody and said, yeah, well, maybe you're the only one who doesn't have any hot buttons in this tort-crazy, hypersensitive world. Maybe you're the only one. And, and the guy I was talking to, there was a lady behind him, and she stepped around in the conversation, and she said, oh, no, no. No, I have a test for you, sir. The guy kind of looked at her. She said, you think you have no hot buttons? Let me just put you in a room with my teenagers for three minutes. <laughs> she said, they're very gifted. They are, they are genius. They can find buttons in any adult to push. It's astonishing. She said, you will walk away realizing you are hypersensitive too. And I laughed and thought, well, that's probably true. Um, I know her teenagers. Uh, anyway, why does that matter? Why does all that matter? Because being developed hurts. 
You know, stones are just an illustration. Unlike rocks, we feel pain when we're being shaped in the lapidary machine that is redeemed community. And because of that pain, we will, we will have a tendency to snap at others, to protect ourselves, to whine as a means of getting ahead, of stopping the hurt. When we do that, when we stop the process because it hurts, if we remain hypersensitive, I promise you one or both of these two things will happen. We will drive away the people who could really help us grow or and or we will run away from the reshaping that we so desperately need. Now we often, when we run away, think about this, we often paste some sick, slick, uh, sanctified pretext over the top of our withdrawal to make it look holy. We, we say things like, I didn't need that kind of negativity in my life, right? Those people were too oppressive. I deserve a safe space, right? Now, please, don't misunderstand. Don't misunderstand. There are certainly times to flee relationships that are biblically unhealthy. But many of our flights, they're just due to hypersensitive fear. They have nothing to do with scriptural wisdom. Third, massive blockade to entering the turn of redeemed community is tribal groupthink. Tribal groupthink. Groupthink has always been a retardant to human growth. Always has been. Till Jesus returns, it will be. Groupthink fears all the time. It fears the shaping of people. Um, that there is a spirit of fear that always animates groupthink. That's why it's become so pernicious in the 21st century. Groupthink is maybe more evident now than any time I can look back on in history for this simple reason. You live in a state of fear perpetually. It is astonishing. The healthiest, wealthiest, safest people in all of human history, and we live in more fear than I think any generation ever has in in 2,000 years at least. And because we live in a perpetual state of fear, groupthink is massive. Here, here's my definition of groupthink. Uh, this is my definition. Groupthink, one feels compelled to build a narrative dam to stop the natural flow of thought development. There should be no development because that might be dangerous, so we build a dam. That is not the way to be shaped. In fact, it is the opposite of the smoothing work accomplished in the river. Probably don't need to give you an example of groupthink. It's so pervasive, but I'll just give you one that hit me recently. Uh, Dr. Harvey Mansfield, perfect illustration of groupthink. This was in the, uh, the Wall Street Journal. He wrote this, the theory behind my disinvitation. I'm just going to read you the first and last paragraphs. He said, recently I was disinvited from giving a commencement address at the small liberal arts college within Concordia University in Montreal. My speech was to be on the study of great books to which that college is devoted. The invitation was a surprise, the rejection less of one, because I am a white male conservative professor. Though I teach at Harvard and I lecture elsewhere fairly often, I don't get invitations for occasions when universities put their principles on display. My last commencement address was for a private high school in rural California. He goes on and finishes with this. When I was much younger and a student in the 1950s, Senator Joseph McCarthy and his allies went on the war path against universities, demanding they exclude communist professors. The universities defended themselves at that time, rejecting the spirit of what is still notorious as McCarthyism. I little thought that I would now in my old age be qualified for exclusion from Concordia University and our free neighbor to the north, not as a member of a conspiratorial organization serving an enemy power, but simply for holding opinions that are shared by half the American and perhaps the Canadian population, close quote. That's what happens with groupthink. You get shut off from people who could actually shape you and make you better. 
Don't think this is limited to universities. It happens in churches all the time. This is why I don't like churches to develop specific formulas. I'm not talking about individual ministries. I mean for the church as a whole. Because it's not long before the good ideas that were behind that formula are forgotten. They just get replaced with acceptable phrases that have become hollow of meaning. Even if it was meant for good originally, the formula becomes empty and deceptive. Most tragically, here's the most tragic thing of all. Groupthink ignores the most powerful force in the world, the most powerful force in human development, the Holy Spirit of God. If I trust God's Spirit, then I can dive in. I can jump into the river. I can enjoy the free exchange of ideas and the give and take of free speech and fight for truth. And I don't have to shut out ideas and build a wall of groupthink because I trust the Lord. Amen? One of our pastors wrote me last week. He was kindly asking uh, my permission for him to speak his mind on a subject. This is his picture, by the way. Um, <laughs> here's the background. He was entering a Bible study that was going to, it was destined, it was going to cover a certain theological topic where his views and mine diverge. We have different opinions. And he wanted to know what I thought about that. And I wrote him back. I wrote him this. I said, the doctrinal statement of Frisco Bible Church makes no comment on this issue. It's not a major issue. So enjoy sharing your ideas. I said, who knows? You may be correct. And then I said, be sure to check. And I listed a bunch of documents and texts that show why I'm actually right. And, um, <laughs> and then I said, nonetheless, I expect you to comment honestly in the discussions. It doesn't hurt our capacity to work brilliantly together. I experienced the same issue with some of my old coaches in and I, the denomination I was in before. I said, I think what they do with this topic is nonsense, but that doesn't keep me from treating them with love and respect. I should tell you the full truth. Full disclosure, I did add this P.S. I look forward to hearing how the Spirit continues to shape us together. Of course, you're the one who needs more edges scraped on this particular issue. <laughs> now, I share that only to show that we do not have to be undone by the blockades of our current world. But how well are we doing with these three massive problems? How are you doing with it? Let's, let's take a quick inventory, okay? Let's do a quick check on our, our tendency to over-individualize our understanding of self. Over-individualize our understanding of self. I'm going to ask you six questions. You just answer yes or no to yourself. Do you feel disrespected when people misspell or mispronounce your name? Uh -huh. Well, you ought to have Broderick, kid. You think yours is tough. Um, instead of, question number two, instead of seeing myself as a steward of God's things, do I ever, ever think of money as my property? Do you ignore or secretly change the convicting parts of the Bible that you don't like? Question number four. You ever feel really down on yourself? Disbelieving, frankly disbelieving God's love for you. Not me. He didn't, there's no way God loves me. Do you hate the idea? This is kind of subtle, but I want you to think it through. Do you hate the idea that Jesus had to suffer for you? Do you, do you wish instead that you could be justified without his sacrifice? Does that come up in your head? Question number six. Have you ever left a fellowship because it didn't offer something you wanted? You, you probably called it a need, but it was a want, right? How are we doing? Let's do a quick check on our hypersensitivity, shall we? Have you ever set up, let me explain this. Have you ever set up some past pain of yours as a hoop people had to jump through? And, and what that means is they had to embrace your particular story your understanding of your hurt without asking any questions, 
They couldn't help you think through maybe some of it that was your responsibility, your fault. No, no, they just had to accept completely your definition of your hurt or you would reject them. Question number two, do you recoil when the church mentions money? Oh my goodness, they talk about money all the time, right? Do you get angry or do you withdraw when you're confronted about sin? Question number four, have I ever posted online about bad service or a perceived slight? I will give them a beat of my mind, right? Ever done that one? When a scripture passage is convicting, do I think more about how it applies to others instead of myself? Other people, especially you, I, really, I think about that. <laughs> Have you ever left a fellowship because somebody hurt your feelings? And I don't make light of that, okay? Hurt feelings hurt. I'm not trying to make light of that at all. It's painful. But have you ever left fellowship because of that? Hypersensitivity. Now let's cover some questions on our tendencies toward groupthink. Do you feel compelled to chime in and correct other people when they are wrong? It's your spiritual gift. <laughs> Criticism, it's in the Bible somewhere. Here's a tough one. Would you, be honest now, would you be more concerned that your Christian child or Christian grandchild marry a fellow believer? Or are you more concerned that he or she weds someone of your social political views? Thanksgiving every year with a stinking Republican at the table. Think about that, right? <laughs> Question number three. Do you purposefully see life, we're talking about groupthink here, do you purposefully see life through a particular racial lens and you think that's good? I grew up with this one a lot. My, my dad's people are all Choctaw Indians. I don't look, I look like mom, but they're very, very Choctaw. And many of them live life through a Choctaw lens. And, uh, and while there are positives, living life through that lens, it is not good. It's groupthink. Question number four. Do you struggle to accept input from, and they just insert whatever's different from you? Liberal Christians, conservative Christians, denominational Christians, independent Christians, whatever. Do you struggle? Those weirdos, I don't want to hear what they have to say. Number five, are you unthinking about Scripture? You just accept whatever your favorite teacher says, whatever, checking it for accuracy? And the last question, have you ever unfriended someone over politics? All right. If you answered yes to any of those 18 questions, raise your hand. Really high. Raise your hands and keep them up. Let me see. Really high. Okay, we got all hands on deck. Very good. Thank you. Do you see the problem? The problem is as huge as Dwayne Johnson's biceps, right? <laughs> Speaking of the rock, you're surely asking a question. In your, you like that? Thank you. You're asking. <laughs> I'm here all week. You're asking, you're asking this question in your, in your smoldering intensity voice of Dwayne Johnson, The Rock, what can we do about it, right? What can we do? In other words, how do we make sure that no stone is left unturned in the shallows, all scratchy, alone? The answer, or at least one good answer, was in that devotion from Dan Bola. Remember, I received Dan's letter as I'm thinking through David's smooth stones and our staff questions about growing up together, being useful in redeemed community. And all that was tumbling in my mind when I went back to Dr. Bola's devotion. In his note... Dan pointed out the Apostle Paul answered this question 1,960 years ago. He answered the question in Colossians chapter 3. Open your Bible there. If you would flip over in your Bible to Colossians chapter 3. It's way back near the end of your New Testament, right after Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, before 1 Thessalonians, you'll find Colossians chapter 3. And, uh, and we're going to read Paul's instruction, God's instruction through Paul about truly sanctifying community. Verse 16. Colossians 3.16, 
Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you in all wisdom, teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Look at this. This shows exactly how to work together so that everyone can become smooth and useful for God's great work. There are three big ideas in Colossians 3.16. Read, study, apply, memorize scripture. Nurture significant fellowships, uh, relationships in the fellowship. And thirdly, worship God with gratitude. Uh, if we adopt these three practices, especially if we do it in a disciplined manner, we can rock on. We really can. We can smooth each other's rough edges, become more useful for God's plans. If we wish to see no stone left unturned, where all the fellowship becomes richer, deeper, smoother, more useful servants of God, we've got to employ these three big ideas in Colossians 3.16. Now, to ensure we're not just grabbing this verse out of context so you understand, look at the little chart in your notes. There's a little chart there in your notes. The big picture of this book is all about Jesus. It's, that's why you set your mind on Christ. Um, Here's how much it's about Jesus. There's only 95 verses in Colossians, 95 verses. 72 of them mention the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, in, it's incredible. Paul's writing from his Roman imprisonment about 60 A.D. to this backwater little town of Colossae, and he is saying, set your minds on the preeminent Jesus Christ. The purpose of this communication is to help them be useful, to walk worthily in Jesus. Now, look at the big ideas in the letter. It starts off with a greeting, prayer, and purpose, the beginning of chapter 1. Then we have the section, chapter 1, on the centrality of Jesus Christ, his preeminence. And then, uh, from the end of chapter 1 to the first part of chapter 2, it's, it's all about Paul. What's his work? What is the work of Jesus' servant? Then the rest of chapter 2 is about this brilliant, brilliant section about the difference between shadow ideas, which look cool but aren't, they're very worldly and empty, and the substance, which is of Jesus Christ. Then the last half of the book, chapters 3 and 4, are about your new, first part of chapter 3, your new life in Christ, who you are. And then the whole last part of the book, chapter 3, verse 11 through 4, verse 18, is about our new life in Christian community. In the always brilliant way the Holy Spirit works the Apostle Paul, the first half of the book destroys shadowy bad theology. Instead of goofy half-truths, the substance, Jesus, the preeminent one, that's to be our focus. Chapters 3 and 4, we learn to serve and to grow. Our vision for this year comes directly from that section, telling us how to grow in resurrected community. Let's start by memorizing the verse. Let's, uh, let's memorize our visionary calling here all together. We're going to start by just saying it. Colossians chapter 3.16. Say the reference. Colossians 3.16. Go. Colossians 3.16. Very nice. Now let's read it all together line by line. Let the word of Christ dwell richly among you with all wisdom teaching and admonishing one another through psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. Well done. We're going to spend our next few gatherings looking in depth at Colossians 3.16 and the ideas it contains. And then we're going to spend the next year fleshing all this out through the many, many different ways the Bible applies it. For today, let's wrap up with this. Look at each of those three big commands in Colossians 3.16 and think about how perfectly each of those gets us over the blockades, the misguided messes of our time. Let the word of Christ richly dwell. What a marvelously poetic way to describe reading, studying, applying, memorizing Scripture. Think about that. What happens when a group of people let the word of Christ dwell richly in them? Let me tell you at least one big thing that happens. They correctly understand themselves. This is massively transformative. Earlier, we discussed the uber-individualization of our time. Just consider all the false definitions of self that plague humanity right now, the, the, the selfishness, the divisiveness. 
Think about all that and realize that all those are overcome when we see ourselves and each other as who we really are, beloved of God. For example, I want to share with you a true story. Stories about Peter and Steve. I change names, of course. Um, they're two young men. At the time our story opens, each of them was really, really down, really down on himself. You see, Peter and Steve both had worked really hard to make the school sports team. And, and they really thought they were in. And they were quite surprised, shocked, and incredibly dismayed to find out they were rejected. Neither of them made the team. Let's talk about Peter first. While he was still hurting from that trauma, Peter asked a girl, a girl that he liked, to go to a movie and a dinner with his family. And the girl said no. But that's not all she said. She said no, ew. And, and I think it was the ew that really cut Peter. That ooh really tore him up. Meanwhile, Steve picked up a bully. He got a bully, and not one of these fake bullies that Don Quixote's are battling everywhere these days. This was a real bully determined to make Steve's life miserable. Now, can anyone relate to, to the pains of Peter and Steve? Anybody relate to those pains? Yeah, okay, of course we can. Let me tell you what happened to them. Peter decided that he was truly unlovable. He just said, I must be unlovable. So he found temporary solace, destructive solace, in cutting himself and using drugs. That was how he tried to get rid of the pain and to remind himself he might be alive. The last I heard, his family and his Christian friends kept trying to introduce him to the overwhelming love of God, to the truth about himself, but Peter refused to spend time with anyone, so he didn't have ears to hear. Steve ached as well. He was really hurt but he ached with God. What Steve did was he got his Bible that he'd never really read, and he began to pour over it, especially passages that told him who he really is in Jesus. He told me that Romans especially began to mean a great deal to him. Steve still faces problems, but he has learned to stop believing the shadowy lies. Instead, he's turned to the substance Jesus. He's found confidence in Jesus, and, and Steve's making friends. That's merely one example. We'll learn more next time. But the point is clear. The application of Scripture clears the hurdle of misunderstood individuality. Second part of Colossians 3.16 teaches us to nurture significant relationships in the fellowship. This is why serve and connect are written on our wall out there as some of the values of the church. Wonderfully, when we do this, it clears the hurdle of hypersensitivity. Let me tell you something. Fearful self-protection does not stand a chance when it chooses to engage with real fellowship. For example, let me tell you about Mary. Mary joined the church consumed over one particular issue. She had an ax to grind, okay? In fact, Mary was so consumed with her ax to grind that she had her feelings hurt almost all the time because she never could find anybody else who shared her passion and her zeal over this particular thing. But let me tell you what Mary did. She chose to stay engaged with her life group, even though, quite frankly, they were all Philistines to her. She chose to give them the benefit of her presence, right? Mary even went and joined a ladies' Bible study, not because she wanted to, but because she felt Scripture telling her she should. And incredibly to her, Mary found that she needed other people to grow. I'm just going to, these are parts of a letter she wrote me, but over time, these people shaped her. 
Mary became amazingly useful. She is very useful. She can now speak to that big issue that was on her heart, but she does it winsomely, folks. She does it from a position of understanding. Her harsh edge has been smoothed. Compare that with Brenna. Brenna was just as determined, and oddly enough, it was about the exact same issue as Mary. But Brenna fled from group to group to group to group, and finally from the church altogether because no one would unquestioningly jump through her hoop. No one would give her the support, as she put it, that she felt she deserved. The poor pastor that was trying to help Brenna wrote me in dismay, and I wrote the pastor back this. I said, look, Brenna wanted a Facebook relationship in the real world. She wanted a place with no questions at all, just supposedly supportive thumbs up on everything she said, but without real, any real interaction or knowledge of each other. That's why Brenna rejected the difference made by people speaking and teaching and admonishing one another with all wisdom. Third part of Colossians 3.16 tells us to worship God with gratitude. You know what worship does? Worship sets things right. God is worthy of praise. And, and when worship is given, there's a correctness that is felt even this side of heaven. What, is, what does it change in us? Look at this. Look up here. The group worship commanded in the Bible arrests our group think. God becomes the center, not my tribe. Look, look at the difference. Group think, remember, is based in fear. It's always based in fear. Not group worship. Group worship is based in gratitude. Group think is concerned with other people's opinion. Always wondering what somebody's thinking. What might somebody be thinking? Not, worship's only concerned with one opinion, and that's God's. Groupthink is focused on unanimity in words and deeds. We must move exactly the same, whatever it says, right? That's creepy. Group worship is about unity, not unanimity. And unity under Jesus is amazingly diverse. Groupthink is always looking to critique and accuse people. In fact, groupthink will always define itself by disagreements. Well, they're wrong on that, and they're wrong on that, and they're wrong on that, and they're wrong on that. Whereas group worship is always looking to unify people underneath the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? Groupthink admires its own orthodoxy. Oh, look how right I am, at least at this minute until society changes. But group worship admires the Holy Spirit's work, not ours. Would you like to become smoother? Would you like to get some rough edges worn off your soul? If so, I want to tell you there is no place, there is no place that can do that like the local church. There's no other tool of God's that can achieve your smoothing like the local church can. That doesn't mean it's going to be easy or painless. It will take work, partnering with God in worship and fellowship and scripture. But if you are willing to enter the rolling river that is God's church, I have a memory token for you. This is, this is something the Bible would call an Ebenezer. Uh, it means a stone of remembrance. And uh, on the table out there behind you, on the table as you walk out, are hundreds and hundreds of little stones. These have been smoothed by conflict and by current. And I encourage you, if you're willing to make this commitment, take one of these stones. Take one. Put it in your, um, put it in your pocket to remind you that you are working this year so that no stone is left unturned so that you and your community are shaped and made different. Um, I'm going to carry mine in my pocket all year. You can put it in your purse, in your car, somewhere that you'll see it. Do keep in mind, if you have small children, these are choking hazards, they're small rocks, okay? But take one and use it all year as a reminder that you, you are going to, by God's grace, you're going to help yourself and your community become smoother. Pray with me, please. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the chance to commit ourselves to being smoothed by you. I, I pray that, that your spirit will use these rocks and other things to remind us of, of our zeal and our commitment that we feel today because we're not going to be as zealous when it starts hurting. We're not going to be as committed when 
other people won't bow down to our idols. So I beg you, give me perseverance and temerity. Give my brethren the same. Thank you that we get to worship you. And we pray, and we pray for the offering we're about to take. I see the ushers are here. That offering is a wonderful opportunity for worship and commitment to our redeemed community. And I, I thank you for it. And I pray we give with joy. In Jesus' name, amen.